Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and we are continuing laying the groundwork for the Olivet Discourse. And so with that in mind, let's read our passage, which comes from Isaiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 19. These are the words of God. The burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw. Lift up a banner on the high mountain, raise your voice to them, Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like that of many peoples, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven. The Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will be limp, every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. It shall be as the hunted gazelle, and as a sheep that no man takes up. Every man will turn to his own people, and every one will flee to his own land. Every one who is found will be thrust through, and every one who is captured will fall by the sword. Their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, who will not regard silver. As for gold, they will not delight in it. Also their bows will dash the young men to pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now by the Holy Spirit, add your blessing to your word, open it up to us, and by the Spirit, strengthen us, confirm us, make us strong and zealous and full of joy in your name, that we might be your faithful disciples, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, we've been laying the groundwork for the Olivet Discourse, and the reason why we've been doing that is because a lot of the Olivet Discourse is prophecy. Last week, we looked at what the Bible teaches big picture about the kingdom of God, and we saw the importance of starting with passages that give us the big picture in straightforward language. That is where we should get our bearings and locate our corner stakes. 
And we got a clear, big picture understanding of the kingdom of God as having been inaugurated by Jesus, beginning with his ascension to the right hand of the Father and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And we saw that it enters the world as a pinch of leaven. It enters the world like a mustard seed, apparently insignificant, apparently weak and unthreatening to the power structures of fallen man. But it doesn't remain that way. Jesus teaches that it grows and it conquers. And so the story of the kingdom, the story of the New Testament age, is one in which Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, conquers his enemies by turning them into his worshipers. And then at the final return of Christ, he conquers the last enemy, which 1 Corinthians 15 tells us is death. Death and the curse is put down, and then Jesus delivers up a perfected kingdom to God the Father. And so that is a very glorious picture. And that big picture, through straightforward language, is very clear, but it gets confusing when we move from the big picture and straightforward language to more of the zoom-in, close-up, detail view, and particularly when we move to those passages that don't speak in straightforward language, but instead use what is known as apocalyptic language, language that seems to be talking about the end of the world. And that is exactly what we find in the Olivet Discourse. For example, in Matthew 24, verse 29, Jesus will say, The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now that's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about apocalyptic language. And we want to answer three questions. What is apocalyptic language? Why does the Bible use it? And what does it mean? Well, if you look up the word apocalyptic in a dictionary, it will tell you that it means describing or prophesying the complete destruction of the world. But if you read the fine print in the dictionary, you will learn that the word comes from the Greek word apocalyptikos, which has absolutely nothing to do with the destruction of the world, but simply means to uncover or reveal. So how did we get from uncovering or revealing to the complete destruction of the world? Well, it's because so much of the Bible's apocalyptic language seems on the surface to be talking about the end of the world, just as the language I quoted a minute ago from the Olivet Discourse. The question is, what is the Bible uncovering or revealing to us through that kind of language? To answer that question, we first need to understand the way God has created the world and the way he uses language. And specifically, we need to understand that God has filled the world with metaphors. In fact, man himself is a metaphor of God. In other words, we're an image of God. We reflect God, and therefore, you can learn something about God by looking at man. That's even true of fallen man. It's especially true of redeemed man. So man is a metaphor for God, and God has filled the entire creation with metaphors. He has built in these correspondences into the creation. So it's completely the opposite of what modernist language philosophers would tell us, which is that metaphors are simply something that we're imposing on the world. Our mind is imposing these connections which don't really exist. 
The Bible tells us the completely the opposite. God has built in these connections. He has built in these metaphors into the creation. He's embedded them. And so when we use a metaphor, when we use a poetic metaphor like my love is a red, red rose, it actually says something. It not only says something, it says it far better. It says it more powerfully. It says it more fully than if the poet were to simply sit there and to try to, in an analytical way, give a bunch of propositions about his love. It says far more about love to say, my love is a red, red rose. The reason why is that God has built in those metaphors, he's built in those connections into the creation, and we're simply discovering them. Now, one of the metaphors we see God use in the Bible many times is the metaphor of the cosmos itself. Now, here's another word that we've changed the meaning to. When we hear the word cosmos, what do you think of? Well, the world, the universe, that's the cosmos, right? Well, the Greek word cosmos has absolutely nothing to do with the universe. It has absolutely nothing to do with the world. The basic meaning of the Greek word cosmos is ornament. That's why we get the word cosmetics from cosmos. That shows you the true meaning. It has to do with beautification. It has to do with beauty. It has to do with an ornament. A cosmos is something that is complex, intricately designed, and made to be beautiful. Picture a Christmas tree ornament. That's a perfect cosmos. It's intricate. It's complex. It's well designed so that it is beautiful. And so that's the way God refers to the universe. It's like his Christmas tree ornament. As G.K. Chesterton has pointed out, the entire universe, the entire creation is entirely unnecessary. God doesn't need it. He creates it. It's an act of extravagance. It's an act of pure, extravagant beauty. It's like an ornament. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures from outer space that show all the stars and then you see the earth, you see all these beautiful white lights out there and all the stars, and then all of a sudden there is this beautiful little blue and white globe. Doesn't it look like a beautiful Christmas tree ornament? That's exactly why God refers to the universe and he refers to the earth as a cosmos. So we see God is already using a metaphor when he calls the world or the earth a cosmos. It's my ornament. God is saying. And so you can see the same kind of metaphor will be used for other complex, intricately designed, beautiful systems or holes. For example, a house, a household, a city, a nation, or a culture. All of those are complex, intricately designed, and intended to be beautiful. And so God will use the cosmos or an ornament as a metaphor for all of those things in Scripture. Now, the other thing God does, because he uses cosmos or ornament as a metaphor for all of those different things, he will also use them as metaphors for one another. So God uses the metaphor of a house for the universe, for example. 1 Samuel 2.8. God describes the whole universe as a house. He says, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. Now, he, God is not a member of the flat earth society there. He understands that the earth is round, 
but he's speaking of it in a poetic way. He refers to the earth as a house because both of them are complex, intricately designed, beautiful holes. And he wants us to know that he planned it that way. God also refers to the nation of Israel as a house. Isaiah 5, 7, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his beautiful plant. So God mixes his metaphors here. He says, My nation of Israel, it's a vineyard. It bears fruit. It's lovely. It's a place you long and, and desire to be. And he also analogizes to a house, something that God has built, something that God has built to be complex and intricate and beautiful. So God also uses cosmos or ornament as a metaphor for a nation. In Isaiah chapter 51, and this is very, very important for understanding prophecy, God describes the founding of Israel as a nation, as the creation of a new cosmos, the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. He's talking about Sinai when he takes this group of people, he forms them up, he calls them out, he pledges himself to them, he gives himself to them, makes them his people, gives them his laws, sets up their societal structures, and creates them as a nation. God says what he did there, he says, I planted the heavens and I laid the foundation of the earth. I created a new ornament. I created a new something beautiful that is complex and intricately designed. And I want you to know that my fingerprints are all over this. It's my ornament. It's my new ornament. It's my new cosmos. It's my new heavens and new earth. It is Israel. And so God, extending that way of speaking, extending that metaphor, will speak of the rulers or the powers within a given nation as heavenly bodies, specifically as sun, moon, and stars. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God created the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. And so we look up and we see them like rulers, high and exalted, looking down, as it were, presiding over the daytime or presiding over the nighttime. That's the way it appears. And so in Genesis chapter 37... When Joseph tells one of his famous dreams to his father, and he says, Father, I dreamed another dream, and in this dream, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars came and they bowed down before me. Jacob immediately knows that this dream has nothing to do with astral bodies. Jacob knows that this dream is about him and his wife and Joseph's eleven brothers. And so Jacob says to Joseph, do you really think that your mother and I and your 11 brothers are going to come and bow down before you? He understands this is about the rulers and the authorities in Joseph's life, Joseph being the youngest. It's about the son in his life, his father. It's about the moon in his life, his mother. And it's about the lesser lights, his 11 brothers, all who are older than he is. So when we understand this way of speaking, we understand how natural it was for the Hebrews to think this way. Nobody has to explain this to Jacob. He understands immediately what this is about. He thinks in terms of this kind of pictorial, poetic, uh, and visual way of thinking. When we put all of that together, and we remember that God has described the founding of Israel as the creation of a new heavens and a new earth, 
then we should expect that God would describe the demise of Israel or of some other nation as the destruction of the cosmos, the discombobulation of the cosmos. This ornament that I put together, I'm taking apart. I'm taking it apart now because it has come under my judgment. All right, so we see that and that makes sense. We get it. God's speaking in a very picturesque and poetic way. The question is, though, what is God intending to reveal or uncover or unveil by describing it in that way? Why doesn't he simply say, I'm going to take apart this nation? I'm going to destroy this nation. Why doesn't he simply say that? Why does he have to use this kind of language? Well, the answer is, God is revealing to us that he is the one bringing these events to pass. He is the one sovereignly presiding over human events so as to bring about judgment on a particular nation so that it falls. So the reason, what God is signaling to us when he uses this kind of language is that um, he is drawing back the curtains. Now, <clears throat> I don't know about you kids, but uh, in my day and in my parents' generation, everybody saw The Wizard of Oz. So I don't know if you've ever seen The Wizard of Oz or not. If you haven't, then I'm talking to your parents because they've seen it. So in The Wizard of Oz, they finally get to the land of Oz and they get to the great and powerful wizard and it turns out to be this guy who's back behind the curtain pulling different levers and so forth. And so they get to go behind the curtain and see what's going on. That's what God is doing with apocalyptic language. He's saying, come behind the curtain. He's drawing the curtains aside. He's saying, come backstage. Let me show you what is going on and let me show you exactly why it is going on. And he is showing us that ordinary looking events, a nation falling is not ordinary in this instant. It's the specific result of God intervening in history, not suspending the laws of nature as he would with a miracle, but intervening nevertheless to bring about his judgment on a particular nation and wanting his people to understand that fact. That is what is being revealed to us. Because if you just look at the events... If you either observed them, if you were there, or you got it on the news, okay? So if we could put ourselves back in the 6th century B.C., when this prophecy was fulfilled regarding Babylon in our text, and we were to get the news reports off of CNN or some other news network, we wouldn't read anything about God. We wouldn't hear anything about God whatsoever. What we would hear about is one more nation falling and another one rising. One more military conquest, more political problems, more economic upheaval, nations rising and falling just like normal. God wants us to know it's not normal. This is not normal stuff. I'm intervening here. I'm controlling things here. I'm behind the politics and the economics. It doesn't mean he's signing off that it's good, but he's saying... I'm taking apart this cosmos known as Babylon. I'm taking it apart. I'm bringing my judgment to bear. And that's what he's signaling to us through this kind of apocalyptic language. 
Now, with that in mind, let's look at our sermon text from Isaiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 19. The reason why I picked this text out of, there's a handful of these in the Old Testament, but this one is particularly rich. It contains so many of the common facets of apocalyptic language that I wanted us to look at it. And I want us to observe the different common features of apocalyptic language and what they mean. First of all, let's notice this feature. There is some straightforward language here where God cues us in to what he is actually talking about. So look at verse 1. The burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw. This is straightforward language. God is cueing us in. Burden against Babylon. Now that's, uh, that's Old Testament way of God saying, my case against Babylon. Here's my burden. Here's my case against Babylon. I have an issue with Babylon. I have a problem with Babylon, which was the world empire at that time. It was in the, in the general Middle East there. It was the supreme uh, empire controlling all others. He's saying, I have a problem with Babylon. I have a case against Babylon, and I'm going to set it out here. And then if you look at the end of the vision, if you look at verses 15 through 19, and particularly, let's start right in the middle of that. Let's start with verse 17. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. Now the Medes, combined with the Persians, the Medo-Persians, they became the next great and reigning empire over the Middle East in this time. They're the ones who took down Babylon. They took down Babylon and became the new empire. And God is saying here in straightforward language, here's what I'm talking about. I'm going to stir up the Medes. I'm going to stir up the Medo-Persians against them. He's talking about a military conquest. That's what he's talking about. And then the context of verse 17 makes that clear. Verse 15, everybody who is found is going to be thrust through, and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. This is military stuff. Verse 18, their bows will dash the young men to pieces. They will have no pity on the fruit of the room. Their eyes are not going to spare children. And bottom line, verse 19, Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he's talking about. This was fulfilled in 539 B.C., specifically in October of 539 B.C., when Cyrus and his armies took the city of Babylon and killed Belshazzar, who was the emperor. If you want to read about the lead up to that, go to the book of Daniel and read about Belshazzar's feast. Belshazzar's feast took place on the very night when Babylon fell. And you know in that feast... God does the handwriting on the wall to Belshazzar. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And so the Medes and Persians came in, and except for some of the principal buildings of the city, which they wanted to preserve because of their beauty, it was reduced to rubble. So we have some straightforward language in here that's giving us the big picture, and that's where we want to go first to make sure we've gotten oriented properly and we've gotten our corner stake set. This is talking about a military conquest. It is not talking about the end of the world. Number two, the second main feature. The Medo-Persians here are, are called God's saints. Verse three, I have commanded my sanctified ones. Who is a sanctified one? That's a saint. 
I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger who rejoice in my exaltation. What is God saying there? He is saying, these are my set-apart ones. That's what sanctified means. That's what saint means. It means somebody that God has set apart for a specific purpose. Now, Christians are set apart completely. Everything about them is set apart because God claims us. We're His children, and everything we do is supposed to reflect His will. But in this instance, God is not saying that these Medo-Persian soldiers know Him, believe in Him, worship Him, serve Him, or have ever heard of Him. He is saying that He has set them apart to accomplish a specific purpose. The third major feature, apocalyptic language speaks as though it is the final judgment that is taking place. Notice verse 4, the kingdoms of the nations are gathered together. Notice verse 5, from the end of heaven, the Lord and His weapons of indignation. Notice later in verse 5, to destroy the whole land. Also in verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes to lay the land desolate, and He will destroy his, its sinners from it. The word translated land literally means the inhabited earth. To lay the inhabited earth desolate and to destroy its sinners from it. Verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Now, if you don't get your corner stakes, if you don't know what God's talking about, and you just read this language, you would think God is talking about the final judgment on the last day. The next major feature of apocalyptic language. This is number four. It speaks as if the destruction of the universe is in view. Verse 10. The stars of the heaven and their constellation will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Also, verse 13, I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. So it sounds like the final judgment of the entire human race and the complete destruction of the fallen universe. Finally, the fifth feature is that this is described as the day of the Lord. Verse 6, Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And then also in verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate. He will destroy its sinners from it. Now, the day of the Lord is often also referred to as the coming of the Lord. In the New Testament, the Greek word for coming that's often used is the word parousia. And if you ever read any literature over uh, Bible prophecy and eschatology and that sort of thing, you're going to see people talking about the parousia, the parousia of Christ, the coming of Christ, the, the return of Christ. Well, parousia literally just means presence. And so when you have a coming of the Lord, you have His presence and it was often used of rulers or dignitaries, so that when a dignitary manifests his presence, he comes to where you are. And that's why it was often called a coming. So coming, the coming of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, the day of the Lord, are all ways of describing the same thing. God has come near in a special way. 
Now we know that in one sense God is always near and infinitely near because he's omnipresent. In Psalm 139, David very beautifully talks about the presence of God. He says, where can I flee from your presence? We sang it earlier just this morning. He says, even if I should go to hell, I cannot get away from your presence. And so in that sense, God is present everywhere. He is always present. He is always infinitely near. But there's another sense in which if we're rebellious against God, if we don't believe in God, if we don't trust in Him, we are infinitely distant from Him, right? And there's also another sense in which God can come near in a special way, when God comes near to judge. And so the way it's pictured in the Bible is that God sometimes comes near to a nation, to a people, to an individual. And when He comes near, what does He do? He takes a look. He takes a close-up look. He assesses things. He sees what's going on, and he brings judgment. He either blesses according to righteousness, or he brings uh, condemnation and curse because of wickedness. And so the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, there are a number of those in the Old Testament. Isaiah 13 is just one of them. This is one of the days of the Lord in the Old Testament, one of the comings of the Lord. When God came near to a particular nation and took a close-up look-see and said, I'm going to assess things here, I'm going to judge things here, I'm going to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, and I am going to bring my judgment to bear, and I'm going to sovereignly make sure it happens. So... As I mentioned, Isaiah chapter 13 is a one of a handful of passages in the Old Testament where God uses this kind of apocalyptic language. It never, ever refers to the end of the universe. It always refers to the end of some cosmos, some ornament, some culture, some nation, some city that in God's providence came to pass. Earlier in the history of the Old Testament, God already has judged Israel, uh, particularly Judah, by bringing Babylon against Judah. So he took the cosmos of Judah apart and raised up the cosmos of Babylon. Now because of Babylon's arrogance and specifically because Belshazzar did not imitate the faith of his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, whom God humbled and brought to faith, God is now taking apart the cosmos of Babylon, and he's bringing in a new cosmos, the empire of the Medo-Persians. God will subsequently take that one down and put the Greeks in their place, and then he will take the Greeks down and put the Romans in their place. The point is, every time this language is used in the Old Testament, it never refers to the end of the space-time universe. It never refers to the meltdown of the periodic table. All right? It refers to God bringing judgment on a particular people. Now what that means is this. By the time you get to the first century and you're dealing with Jews who have grown up in this way of thinking, they have grown up with this kind of poetic language, they understand it, they've lived by it, their fathers and grandfathers have been through it. No one who heard this kind of language in the first century would think that Jesus was talking about the end of the space-time universe. They would think that what he is saying 
is what God has always been saying in the Old Testament every time he loses, uses this language. That Jesus is saying one more time now, this time with Judah, just time with Israel, this time with Jerusalem, God is going to come near. This time it is Jesus who's been exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus is going to come near. He's going to take a look-see, and he's going to take apart a cosmos. He's going to take apart Christless Judaism. He's going to take apart Judaism that refused the Messiah. And not only refused Him once, but refused the witness of the Holy Spirit through the early church for 40 years. He's going to come near and He's going to take that apart. But He's raising up a new one. A new one called the Kingdom of God. A new one called the church. Now, we tend to think as modern evangelicals, that even if we're willing to grant that this is the way God spoke in the Old Testament, and this is the way He acted in the Old Testament, again, this is where dispensationalism tends to come in and influence us all. We tend to think that beginning with the coming of Christ and His ascension, we live in this parenthesis, we live in this time out called the church age, and where, where Jesus now has suspended those activities. He's not interested in these earthly things anymore. He's interested in heavenly things like forgiveness of sins and going to heaven when you die. He's not interested in the rise and fall of nations anymore. He's not bringing peoples under judgment anymore. But then we'll think, he'll start that up again one day, but that's when he comes back. But that's not what the New Testament teaches us. The New Testament teaches us that the New Testament age is one of intensification. It's not when God moves further away. It's not when Jesus moves further away. It's when He comes even closer. It's not when His power goes down. It's when His power goes up. And, and the Bible speaks to this very clearly in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, there, I think it's Paul, but whoever you want to think is writing Hebrews, is speaking to Jewish Christians who are a millimeter away from turning away from Jesus and turning back to a Christless Judaism. Because the way it looked in the 60s AD, the way it looked was that the church was just going to nothing. Meanwhile, it looked like Judaism was doing great. I mean, Herod, the great, magnificent uh, temple of Herod, was finally completed in the 60s, and it was glorious. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And so it looked like God is blessing Christless Judaism, and Christianity is just being stomped on. That's the way it looked. And so many of these Jewish Christians were beginning to think, we made a mistake. We made a mistake. We need to turn back. And so the whole book of Hebrews is written to them to say, no, don't judge by your eyes. Judge by the word of Christ. Judge by faith. And so what he says in Hebrews 12 is, look, number one, you need to understand that the person who spoke God's words to Moses on top of Mount Sinai was Jesus. It was Jesus before he became a man. It was the pre-incarnate Son of God who was there on the mountain who spoke to Moses. And when he spoke, he shook the mountain. 
And the people were frightened. He, spoke, he shook the mountain. And they say, this is the same Jesus who's now been exalted to the right hand of God. He doesn't speak from the top of Mount Sinai anymore. He speaks from the top of Mount Zion. He speaks from the heavenly Jerusalem. And he's not just shaking the mountain anymore. He's shaking heaven and earth. So there's a sense in which we think Jesus has gone away into heaven. He's far, far away now. No, 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 no. That means he's come closer because his power has been greatly expanded. And so they say he's shaking heaven and earth. What does that mean? What it means, it tells us in Hebrews 12, is that he's shaking so that everything that can be shaken is removed. Well, what is everything that can be shaken? It's everything but the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is the only thing that cannot be shaken. You remember Jesus talking about the two houses, one built on the Word of God and one not built on the Word of God. And that one's built on sand. And so one house stands and the other house falls. But how do you tell the difference? Well, when the weather's good, you can't tell the difference. They're both nice houses. They're both standing just fine. It's when the storm comes. It's when Jesus starts shaking the world that you tell the difference between a house built on a rock and the house that's built on sand. And so that's what Jesus is doing to the world, Hebrews 12 says. He's shaking the whole world now so that what remains is no more the illicit power structures of the kingdom of man pretending to be God and always oppressing other men. That's not going to stand over the long haul. What is going to stand is individuals, marriages, families, churches, communities, and nations that believe in Jesus Christ and try to do everything according to His Word. That is what is going to stand. And so it gives the admonishment, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So the New Testament age, beginning... With Jerusalem, remember what Peter tells us, God always begins judgment with his own household. Judgment always begins with the household of God. Why? Because God is a good father. What does a good father do? If there's a youth problem in the town and his kids are part of it, where does a good father start? With everybody else's kids? With his own kids. That's where God always starts. He always starts with the church. He always starts with His own people, with His own household. That is where Jesus demonstrates for the first time what the rod of iron looks like, wielded by the ascended and reigning Christ of the world. He says, I'm going to show you with my own children who will not believe. This is what it looks like. So once again, with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., what do you see? If you watch it on CNN, what are you going to see? Politics, economics, military, people fighting one more time, one nation going down, another one going up, same old stuff. God says it's not the same old stuff. Jesus is saying, no, 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 this is me. This is me acting here. I can act through those who don't know me. The fact that they don't know me is not a limitation on me because all authority and power in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so I bring about my sovereign will. I bring about my sovereign will and I show my judgment. This is what God is revealing to us through apocalyptic language. 
Jesus is the reigning Lord of the world. And he has come even more near now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.